1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Carbonac gets trickier and more ambitious. In other cybercrime news, ransomware takes off after more databases. There's a new ransomware-as-a-service offering in the black market. A new strain of Android ransomware hits Russian-speaking users. Locky's back, but in a feeble sort of way. Cybercriminals lock files at a cancer service not-for-profit. Russian policy wonks seem to suggest that we're not at the point in history where 2016 yielded to 2017. Instead, calling all cold warriors... 1948 just ticked over into 1949. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire Summary, and we can review for Friday, January 20th, 2017. There's a fair amount of extortion news at week's end. Ransomware criminals who've been hitting Elasticsearch and MongoDB databases have begun to devote similar attention to CouchDB and Hadoop. The tools for attacking MongoDB and Elasticsearch, as well as a list of vulnerable installations, are now being sold by Kraken Zero on the black market for about $500. The attacks on databases have been unusually damaging, sometimes wiping the data beyond reasonable prospect of recovery. Elsewhere in the criminal markets, the Satan Ransomware as a Service is being offered to criminals who lack the time, resources or technical chops to come up with their own attacks. They offer a wizard to walk aspiring crime lords through the process, as criminal markets and the ways the goods for sale there are designed and hawked continue to ape legitimate markets. Bleeping Computer has the details through researcher Xylitol. They offer a very thorough look at Satan, the malware, not the fallen angel. Unfortunately, there's so far no readily available way of decrypting files that fall victim to Satan, so remember to back up your data. Fortinet has discovered a new strain of Android ransomware that targets Russian-speaking users. It's unusual in at least two respects. First, its demand is very large, 545,000 rubles, about $9,100, at least an order of magnitude more than the cost of the Android devices whose screen it locks. Second, it asks for payment by credit card as opposed to the customary cryptocurrency. This suggests several possibilities. Android endpoints are highly valued in certain markets, or the hoods behind this one are inexperienced or overreaching, or the goal is actually carding, perhaps as gravy on top of the main course of extortion. Locky ransomware seems to be making a minor comeback after its temporary eclipse during the holidays, but it may be on its way to supersession by the Spora ransomware strain. An unusually repellent extortion attack has hit an Indiana Cancer Services not-for-profit, The muncie based Red Door has seen its files encrypted. Police are investigating, but it's worth noting that even the most benign and uncontroversial not-for-profits can find themselves in cybercriminals' crosshairs. Back your files up. And if you're a security professional looking for a chance to do some pro bono work, take a look around at your favorite charities and consider offering your services. Trustwave and Forcepoint are tracking the evolution of Carbonac, The gang, long known for attacks on financial services that are thought to have brought in something north of a cool billion dollars, have begun, as we noted yesterday, to use legitimate Google services for their command and control traffic. It's worth noting that Forcepoint and Trustwave have said they've reached out to Google for some cooperative way of addressing this problem. What's equally interesting is the way in which Carbonac seems to have expanded their target set. They now appear to be going after businesses in the retail and hospitality sectors, too. Many observers are talking about a de facto state of cyber war between the United States and Russia, which seems overstated, where, for example, is the physical destruction, to say nothing of the casualties, one associates with warfare. But it might not be an exaggeration to call it a de facto state of cyber cold warfare. This is especially so since what we now call information operations were prominently featured in the first cold war as propaganda, disinformation, running agents of influence, and so on. But the Washington Post has a piece on a speech one of President Putin's advisers gave back in February. It seems to offer a look at cyberspace under eastern eyes. Andrei Kruitskyk told InfoForum 2016 that we're living in 1948. That is, we're living in the last year of the U.S. monopoly of nuclear weapons. In 1949, Kruitskyk said, Truman had no choice but to start taking the USSR, a.k.a. Russia, seriously. Kruitskik promised that in cyberspace we were about to move into 1949. If he's right, one hopes there's a George Kennan for the cyber age out there. If there is, we'll read his or her forthcoming long telegram with interest. As the Trump administration takes office, former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani has been designated as a lead for cybersecurity policy. The role is more facilitator than director, still less czar, but the appointment has attracted attention because of the patchy security on Mr. Giuliani's consultancy's website. We heard from Mike Patterson, CEO of Plixer International, who sees a lesson here for everyone. The problems with Giuliani's website, Patterson says, quote, reinforce the magnitude of the problem they face coming into office. When it comes to targeted attacks, which they will definitely be facing, there is almost no defense. Because of this, they may consider entirely new communication methods with all new hardware and software protocols. This will make bridging their discussions to the internet very difficult and as a result much more secure. He foresees air gaps and toughness on crime. Finally, are we forgetting anything? Oh, there's apparently some big event going on about 40 miles south of us today. What'd we miss? Ah, right, just kidding. It's Inauguration Day down in the District of Columbia. Wherever you are, and if you're in the United States, whomever you voted for, we hope you'll join us in wishing both President Obama and President Trump the best of luck as they step into the next phase of their and our lives. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. Joining me once again is Emily Wilson. She's the director of analysis for Terbium Labs. Emily, uh, we've sort of been making our way through the report that you put out recently, separating fact from fiction, the truth about the dark web. I think, myself included, I think a lot of people have this perception that the dark web is full of, uh, you know, terrorists and bad guys. Um, But your report sort of brought out the fact that maybe that's not the case.
0: Yeah, it's, it's definitely a question that we get asked fairly frequently and, and understandably so. You know, this is a situation where people want to know what kinds of things are taking place and what's considered to be a, a more kind of unregulated part of the Internet. And, you know, we we ran into some interesting situations here, both with extremism, um, a category for weapons and then a category for what we called weapons of mass destruction, you know, sort of an an absence of evidence issue. Right. You know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. It's Mm -hmm. merely kind of an indication of rarity. And so we we found one incident of extremism in the work that we were doing in the the sample that we took. Again, the, the study is based on a random sample of URLs and we thought that was really interesting because, you know, these events are some of the most popular topics of conversation for people who are first looking at the dark web. Once you get past drugs and fraud, then you na- naturally turn to kind of more extreme, nasty activity. And really, these things are very rare. That's that's interesting for a few reasons, right? Because one just because they're rare doesn't mean they don't happen we certainly see extremism pop up from time to time you know whether you're dealing with you know a mujahideen handbook or the official Isis site that popped up I guess that was last fall um, you know and was quickly taken down by anonymous or something like weapons where we know that weapons exist on the dark web we've seen them we, we know kind of where they are but we didn't see any in our sample which I think is a really good a good indicator of how rare these things actually are but you know, I think the other thing to keep in mind about weapons is to take that with a grain of salt. You know, the the larger and more intricate the, the weapon, the more you run into an issue of how are you actually going to ship that.
1: Right, right. This doesn't mean that ISIS isn't online. It just means that ISIS chooses not to use this particular uh, locality to do their business.
0: Sure. And, and I think that they're... Uh, there is a tendency to lose the nuance in encrypted and anonymous communication as necessarily being on the dark web. You know, I think I think it's a, a few things, right? So, certainly encrypted communications and fully private communications are important to people who are trying to plan and carry out kind of terrible attacks. I think also, you know, there are plenty of Tor hidden services, and and our study was based on just kind of a sample of Tor hidden services in this case. There are plenty of hidden services that are designed to never be shared or are designed to be shared with a select group of individuals. And when you are dealing with something that is that important, it is unlikely that that link is going to get out to anyone else. And so it's going to be very difficult to measure or capture or find.
1: All right. Emily Wilson, always interesting. Thanks for joining us. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Simone Petrella. She's the chief cybersecurity officer at CyberVista, where she leads product development and delivery of cybersecurity training and education curriculums, as well as workforce initiatives for executives, cyber practitioners, and continuing education.
2: I actually think that one of the best things that's happening to the cybersecurity workforce discussion right now is a widening of that aperture to people that have different disciplines in their background. I think one of the biggest misnomers in cybersecurity is that it, it really is one particular technically niche field. And in reality, it's not. It's It's multidisciplinary. And so what really makes um, an organization and individuals successful when they go into cybersecurity is bringing that wealth and breadth and depth of background into their particular functional task. And so, you know, I can tell you from my own personal experience, I had a lot of success on the threat intelligence side, hiring either people who are trained as attorneys or were former attorneys because of the the critical thinking and the assessment components. And we were able to train them up on the, the technical skills required to specifically focus on cybersecurity after the fact. Um, I think there is just a huge benefit to even just pursuing those backgrounds as a foundational baseline for those that want to get interested in cybersecurity. Frankly, that's what makes the the field so exciting right now is there are really jobs and skill sets that are require people to have a wide spectrum of skill sets. So it's not just an area that needs to be the, the purview of only the, the hyper-technical.
1: And what are you hearing from the employers? Are, are they saying that the people coming out of school are properly prepared, or is there a gap there?
0: No,
2: unfortunately, the, the vast amount of employers, and there's a very interesting study um, that had been done by CSIS, the Center for Strategic International Studies and Intel um, Security, around this very issue. and. By and large, employers surveyed found that the people they were bringing onto to jobs out of university were not properly prepared for the job tasks that they were expected to perform once they gained employment. So there's still a gap.
1: Can you contrast uh, some of the differences in, in skills that uh, the private sector versus the public sector are looking for?
2: Yeah. So the biggest contrast when it comes to private versus public sector is that the private sector, to date, currently has a completely defensive mission so in the the government sector there is clearly an emphasis on defense but there's also a significant amount of expenditure in time and resources on offensive capabilities um, and exploitation activities and those are you know definitely appealing for for those that are the the most hands-on in proactively going out and doing things on networks the Commercial sector is for, you know, authority and legal and and just economic reasons focused on the defense of their own networks. And so that is in particular not only very focused on defense, but it's an increased focus on the integration of all the disciplines within cybersecurity that contribute to that defense. So it's not just whether you have a, a background in vulnerability management and are identifying which applications are updated to to which point and which ones need patches, and then how are you actually monitoring the activity that's going on on a, a network on a day-to-day basis, but how is the output or information you're receiving from any one of those disciplines feeding the decisions and, and business operations of its adjacent units, and that integration and optimization of how those defensive capabilities work together is extremely critical in commercial just because they've had less time to really put it together. Whereas, you know, in the government sector, the DOD in particular has had uh, a longer runtime to really get that right.
1: What would your advice be to the employers in such a highly competitive environment, where you know they're vying for the most talented people? What are the ways, in your opinion, that they can set themselves apart from the other people trying to to hire those skilled workers?
2: Ooh, to set themselves apart, I, I think the the hard the hardest thing is is now the way that that's currently happening is usually through through salary and incentive programs. Um, I actually, my recommendation to employers is to take more of a a community-based approach to how they they look at their their staffing. The beauty of cybersecurity as a profession is it really is cross-functional. And so the job functions of a cybersecurity professional in the healthcare market are not terribly dissimilar to what you would need to do in the financial services sector. You're really just, you need the context of what you're protecting. And so I think there needs to be more of a community model in the in the actual industry to pool the resources that they're currently spending to either create on-the-job training programs and, and very costly training opportunities and maybe put in a fraction of that amount to essentially create a, a bigger pool of candidates that they all can select from. Because right now they're they're fighting over the same very small, finite pool of candidates.
1: I understand you're the chair for the for industry for the upcoming Nice Conference. Uh, what do you want people to know about that?
2: Uh, I would love people to know that the Nice Conference, which is the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education, is the wonderful opportunity for employers, academic industry, and government to come together and really identifies ways as a community to solve the cybersecurity workforce issue and. Employers in particular really have a operative seat at that table in order to articulate the most required skill sets that they need while there's an audience of of government and academia and training providers who have the capabilities and willingness to build curriculums to actually serve that potential population. So it should be a a wonderful time. It's going to be November 7th and 8th of 2017 uh, at the Dayton Convention Center in Dayton, Ohio.
1: That's Simone Petrella from Cyber Vista. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.